All right, we're live. Welcome back to the Beyond the Swing podcast. Got a really awesome guest today, Jaime Fernandez. Hopefully I didn't uh, butcher that, that name and I pronounced it well, but um, Jaime is, is someone who, uh, you know, I've actually read uh, many papers on. He's a researcher, um, PhD, and does a lot of research on tennis, which is which is great. He's one of the there's a few guys out there that, that have been doing that, and he's one of the most prominent ones. Um, I, I don't know how he'll tell us, but there's it seems like hundreds of studies that he's that he's published. So uh, it's it's quite fantastic, and we're going to get into a lot of that research today, particularly things like the serve, um, where he's done a lot of work in. Um, repeat sprintability, things of that nature, and how we can apply these things to uh, the tennis court and to the practice court and how we can make the practice court better. So, Jaime, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much, Matt. And uh, I'm I'm really happy to be here. And yeah, uh, you pronounce it really good. Thank you. So, uh, I mean, even if you said uh, Jamie, it's okay for me, uh, but uh, I appreciate that. And of course, thanks for the introduction. It's uh, it's always fantastic to to share a little bit of knowledge uh, to uh, to tennis people and with tennis people. So so I'm really happy to be here. That's great. That's great. So uh, Jaime, tell us a little bit um, about your background because I don't even know. Did you play tennis growing up, or um, how did you get involved really in, in sort of more on the tennis side of the research and, and things like that? Tell us a little bit. Well, I mean, uh, I was actually coming from uh, track and field. I was uh, um, a pretty decent, I would say, junior. Um, I was a, a 200 meter runner. And at the time I was, uh, I think one year at the junior level was a uh, second uh, position at the national championships mm. but uh, as, as soon as I arrived at that level I realized that uh, of course I was small and white and <laughs> in a in a sport in which uh, that was a huge difference you know so um, yeah when when I started my studies of course I, I started like sports science degree and and I, I, I clearly remember how I get. Uh, of course, when I was when I was a, when I was a kid, I was playing tennis, but not not a, a the competitive level, just mm. uh, learning tennis. But I was more attracted to uh, to run. I was uh, I was good on running and I was fast, so I decided mm. to to move to track and field. Um, uh, when I was finishing my 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 bachelor studies, uh, I remember. Um, specifically a final, uh, a semi-final and final of the Masters. Uh, it was um, a match uh, between, uh, I think it was around 1998 or something like that. It was a semi-final between Alex Correcha, a Spanish player, and, and Pete Sampras. And Correcha won that match. Oh, wow. uh, he, yeah, he, uh, he was in the final. He played the final against Moya. Mm. And uh, he won the the, the Masters Cup, mm. and that that year uh, they both played uh, the Roland Garros final, mm. and Moya won that final. So uh, that year I was so so attracted by by tennis. It was I was as as soon as I was uh, you know detecting there was a match on the TV. I was I was close to the match, and I was following quite a lot the um, uh, you know uh, the competition. And I remember that right after, right after the French Open, I think uh, uh, it was my last semester at the uni, um, the former strength and conditioning coach from Correcha uh, did a, a talk at the uni. And I was fascinated by, by, by the sport, not, not by him or the way he was doing things, but, but by the sport. So as soon as I finished, I started to work with, with young kids. Mm. and young, young tennis player and um, since then I started to to be more and more and more engaged to the sport and I was uh, spending a lot of time on the court with the coaches and I was uh, you know that kind of 
guy who's a little bit of pain in the ass for them because <laughs> I was all the time I was asking questions and why you do these things and why you do this and not this and and why you organize a training like this and uh, what's the difference for example between those kids who were doing the conditioning before and uh, or other kids they were attending the conditioning after the tennis so uh, there were a lot of questions around around my my mind at that time so that was the um initial questions which uh ending in my phd at the time mm. uh, because uh i was uh, trying to find information um about basically about exercise physiology applied to the sport because i was uh, at the time i was uh, crazy about exercise physiology and the systems and how to organize a little bit more the training because all the information i was uh uh obtaining at the time it was uh from coming from other sports you know from basically from soccer uh european soccer but uh but from track and field basically yeah. and uh, i was like okay this is okay but this is this could be better i guess in terms of um specificity so i was you know crossing my mind like uh, uh searching for information and and that's that's the way i started i guess yeah, that's that's really interesting and kind of similar for me in the sense that when I was studying, I was also you learn things, you know, as you go through your 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 bachelor's. I, I didn't I haven't done a PhD, but my master's, you start question, you learn things, you learn about physiology and biomechanics, and you're questioning, well, this doesn't correspond really with what's happening in reality on the tennis court, you know, or in the practice practice court so that's that's really interesting and you coming from a, a track and field background um where there's a there's a bigger culture right in terms yeah. of applying you know sports science physical preparation and things like that what have you taken from from track that you could you think could be or have you applied into you know the training of tennis athletes um i think I think basically it's about um, you know the interest of monitoring things uh, mm. because uh, you know when when you're a track and field athlete or coach because I also work as a coach as a track and field coach mm. uh, with with youth at, uh, during my first I think uh, year after after my my bachelor and. Um, when, when you see those coaches, track and field coaches or swimming coaches, they, they write everything and, and they record everything and they try to monitor everything. Uh, they are not only planning things. They plan things, but then uh, they record uh, what the, the athletes did, actually. Mm. So And then they can compare what they plan uh, with what the athlete actually uh, did. So that was one of the most interesting things for me because at the time I was, I was you know, uh, talking to other strength and conditioning coaches or, or even tennis coaches and, and no one really cared about that. Mm. You know, it was like, okay, they were writing down on the paper what they were going to do that day. And the next day it was another blank paper. There was no, pl no planning around. There was no um, periodization at all. There was no uh, control on the training loads. There, there was nothing. It was more like a trial and error uh, approach to the to the athlete. And I was uh, I was watching a lot of a lot of players, really good players, who were on the road because uh, you know uh, they were burnout. Most of them they were like uh, overtrained. They were uh, injured most of the times. So it was because a uh, lack of control. So that was probably the most um, important approach I, I tried to uh, to give to my to my players or my environment. I would say mm. that's interesting. This this concept of of monitoring and planning. Um, I, th I believe you've done some research on this this topic as well, right? Yeah. What's the difference, sort of, between just testing and, and monitoring? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you need 
you need to test uh, things uh, you can improve. That's the, that's the most important thing, not just testing for testing, which is most of the times what, what they teach you at the uni. Mm. You know, they teach you a lot of testing, but then uh, the reality tells you that, okay, most of those tests are completely useless for your environment. Mm. I'm not saying that the testing is useless, but, but a lot of things we learn, we have to, I always say that, I mean, we have to de-learn and and you know switch on again and and try to connect with the sport so that's that's why uh, for example I'm, I'm changing every year i'm changing a uh, few things uh, when i'm testing the athletes because you know i i read something which is interesting and and for me and i said oh maybe i can apply it maybe i'm wrong and then i change again but uh, i try to I would say it's not innovation, but I try to be updated in that in that sense, you know. So um, the difference is uh, you monitor how the training loads are changing or not, how the athlete is uh, it is responding, um, and you know the word monitoring is is huge. I mean, when when you're at the uni, they teach they teach you that monitoring is only about. Uh, uh, you know, magnitude and intensity and volume and so on uh, of the load and mm. the exercise itself or wherever. But uh, monitoring is is huge. is a huge approach because if, if you think about it, you have to pay attention on the uh, psychology. You have to pay, to pay attention on the environment of the athlete, um, or or if if the athlete is uh, is studying how is or she's developing and how she's uh, doing on, on school. There are a lot of things uh, in terms of monitoring. And then testing is, is only a small piece of the, of the cake, I would say. In, in my case, it's more related to, uh, to the you know, physical conditioning and how to, um, to analyze if, if the loads I'm, I'm giving to the players they are working or not. So mm. it's, that's the main difference for me. Mm. And have you found, you know, that there's, there's a best practice for, for monitoring, um, given your research in this area? I mean, if there's a tennis coach listening, you know, they might be thinking, well, how, how am I going to monitor all these things? How am I going to monitor the physical, the psychological, their on-court training load? Um, you know, is there a way that, you know, there's something because it can be really effective, but if it's like you said, if it doesn't really work in the player's environment, it might be difficult to to stick with it. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, uh, first thing is to analyze the environment. You know, if if the environment is not like I would say friendly for you as a professional, it's very difficult to do these things. Uh, uh, of course, I'm not. I'm not monitoring everything. It's impossible. Yeah. Uh, it's only possible for a few, I would say, federations or, or not even clubs. I would say like huge, huge uh, federations like Tennis Australia or, or the USTA or those big federations who, who have a lot of money. Um, they can actually do that. I mean, I know that Tennis Australia is doing a hell of a job in terms of, of specifically uh, monitoring and obtaining like big data right now. Uh, so, but it's the only, uh, the only one who's like, you know, working on that area. Uh, for the rest of us, I would say it's, uh, it's only a small portion mm -hmm. what you can do. Uh, in my case, I'm, I'm focused on, on the fitness, on the fitness side. And of course, together with the coach, um, we are trying to implement things, small things, small, uh, I would say, um, uh, tools, uh, easy tools, easy to handle for them. Uh, for example, the use of uh, simple uh, Excel uh, sheets to, uh, you know, to uh, control basic things like volume, like, uh, like the RPE, like, the, you know, basic training loads for the tennis. Uh, together with some, the use of some scales for the, 
the feelings from the from the players, like uh, how they feel uh, in terms of recovery, in terms of uh, um, you know mental fatigue, simple things which are easy to to handle and easy to use, and not you know um, it's not taking more than uh, ten minutes uh, a day for the player together with the coaching, uh, you know, to 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 feel the, the different things and and to send information. And I, I get all this information and at the end of the week, sometimes on a daily basis, but of course, it depends on my, on my work. Uh, I normally use the weekends to analyze a little bit the, 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 the week profile yeah. and then I can, I can send a report. And based on that, I found that this is a good approach. Uh, it's not the perfect environment, of course, it's not the perfect uh a scenario but it's a good one i guess yeah no absolutely and i think that's important i mean we have there's basic tools like we i have automatic google forms that are sent out to my players that they it literally takes you know a couple minutes for them to fill out how many hours they've been on court how many physical hours they've done how hard was the session you know that's your rating of perceived exertion like you said the rpe um and then we do like an adapted hooper mckinnon test right and i used to do it daily but it's to be honest even with players who are you know most of the players i work with are futures challenger um even that adherence there can sometimes be difficult yeah it is so actually so now we do it twice a week you know midweek and end of the week um and that seems to be something that they they can they can handle. Um, yeah. You can get at least, you know, over time you get enough data points where you can make some some more informed decisions. In the in the last few, um, in the, I think in the last two years, I've been working quite a lot with um, a research group, research group from the from the University of Elche uh, in the uh, south uh, southeast of Spain. And they are working quite a lot on the heart rate uh, variability, mm. and um, and we found that there's a I mean, there's an app, very very easy to use, very simple, uh, and you just it, it takes uh, the athlete one minute, and they can use it actually with the phone, mm. and with the camera, and uh, early morning, so it takes they sit down and and they get a. You know, with the phone, uh, uh, one minute recording, mm. and and then the the app is sending the information automatically to a big uh, you know database, mm. uh, and right away you can get a an easy report on on how the athlete is uh, is doing the uh, on yeah. that specific day, yeah. and based on that uh, is I mean you you probably heard about it. I mean it's these uh, daily. Uh, approach to the training you know yeah. it's like uh, uh the periodization on a daily base they call it yeah. i guess they call um, it, uh, c- cybernetic periodization yes. was the um american term i think it was uh, okay yeah yeah it's the same and it's it's pretty pretty interesting you know uh we are uh, planning to do um, like a small research um about how the athletes are uh um, you know, responding, uh, you know, if, if you plan a high intensity or a shock microcycle mm-hmm. and, and then how they individually uh, respond uh, right after that microcycle. Mm-hmm. Now, because when, when you work with, and you know it pretty good, I mean, when you work with uh, tennis players, you can, you can train with them only a few weeks in the year. So most mm-hmm. of the times you have to use, spe- especially when they are like, older you have to use these shock microcycles and uh, of course some players are responding good but some others are not so uh, it depends on how they respond Um, you can basically have a few days right after the microcycle in which the player is not is not working really good Um, and you know the the coach the tennis coach is always pushing and when they go on court and when they go on, on, on traveling, I mean, as soon as they arrive at the place, I mean, it's training, training, training. And the, and the young yeah. player is like pushing uh, himself or herself quite a lot. 
Um, so it's a good way to tell, hey, slow down for a minute, slow down for two or three days, and then you can push again. So we found that it's uh, pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah, uh, I, I like it. I, I hesitate sometimes um, with some of the, the daily stuff just because I've had athletes where they're like, oh, I can't train hard today. Or because, but sometimes you do need to, and then other times they're fresh and, you know, um, they can, you know, I like that side of it because it's, it shows that, you know, you're fresh. So we, we can push the envelope today, but yeah, it's, it's, it's good that you mentioned that because, um, uh, it's specifically, if you remember what I said at the beginning uh, and about monitoring, uh, of course you only have, uh, you know, the heart rate variability of that day. Uh, but you don't have any information about the athlete mm. itself. I mean, the athlete can have a lot of problems at the school or, or a personal problems. Mm. And, and the variability is telling you that, I mean, you can push them, but the reality is that when you combine uh, both yeah. information, uh, exactly. you have to say, okay, I, the, the, theor the theory is telling me that I can push him, but the reality is telling you that, oh, if you push him, maybe today he's not responding. Not mm. because he can't, but mentally he's not able to do that. Yeah. So that's why I was telling you that for me, monitoring is a very, it's very complex, I would say. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you said it also best when you said that these are, these are tools, right? They're not, yes. they, they don't replace the coaches, you know, subjective feeling of what's going on and ultimately how they implement this yeah, tool it's, or the, it's, the data from the tool right it's very helpful because it, it can provide uh, another piece to the to the training uh, mm -hmm. routine so the coach has uh, his perspective uh, the strength and conditioning coach has his own perspective as well but also you can use these tools to uh, to put a little bit more pieces on the on the complexity you know yeah. and and all together if the if the information is uh on the same page uh yeah. you can actually do a good work but that's another part of the story because uh, there are a lot of pieces to to put together you know yeah the coach the snc coach the physiotherapist uh, the parents uh, so everyone has his own opinion so it's it's difficult to uh... exactly <laughs> exactly i mean i Ultimately, I do think these tools have tremendous value, especially, you know, during um, travel periods, like you said, because that can be very stressful. I, I like them less during um, training periods only because, you know, sometimes you need to, I, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, get the athlete to really get hit with a fair amount of stress and then hopefully yeah. we have a big you know super compensation effect and and they rebound but you know, but if you if you if you plan that i mean there's no problem at all i mean exactly it's, it's in your program and and yeah if you plan it uh, properly there's no problem to do that mm -hmm. uh of course i agree with that i mean i'm not um even if i'm um, a researcher and so on I'm, I'm a guy who's like working on a daily base with the athletes mm. and I'm not really a huge fan of, of monitoring everything. I was in the past. I was in the past and mm. I was like crazy about these tools and, <laughs> you know, and um, heart rate monitors every day and, and scales every day. And so, but I realized that, you know, I need it. I need it, but sometimes, most yeah. of the times, most of the times, I'm like a plain uh, SNC coach. I'm working mm. on a on a daily base. I'm working with my eyes, and I'm, I'm working with with the feelings of the players. And and of course, I'm. I think you know when you when you get old, it's uh, uh, I'm more I would say stricted with um, with the planning. Mm. Uh, for me, it's not like okay. If I have to change everything on a daily basis, uh, I'm getting crazy. So yeah. I, I need to plan things. So I'm, I'm more, uh, every year I'm more and more um, restrictive with uh, 
for example, with um, with the competitive uh, uh, or with the competitions, with the with the calendar and the tournaments and so on. So I need a more clear perspective since day one. Uh, yeah. So uh, to 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 be able to construct something which I think it's useful for for the player uh, because you know tennis it's uh, most of the times the the planning depends on the tournament calendar and mm. uh, is not is not the best approach for these athletes and I mean you know research is showing that <laughs> you know experience in show is is showing that but. Uh, it seems like we are turning back to the 90s somehow, mm. at least in Spain. Like uh, kids are uh, playing more and more and more and training less and less and less. It's it's a crazy approach. Wow. Uh, I mean, there's so much pressure perhaps on, on these young players to perform well at such an early age. What do you... I mean, you, in, in Spain, and maybe we can touch on this, I mean, Spanish tennis has been pretty successful, you know, for, for many years now. Um, yeah. Is it just because of the sheer volume of players or is there something to, you know, something in how they're training, you know, these environments that are breeding these players? What do you think? And I think, I think it's a mix of both. In my opinion, and it's only my opinion, and this is this is important. Uh, uh, of course, we have a, we have we have an advantage in terms of environment. I would say because there's specifically on the east coast is a, it's a really nice places to play tennis. Mm-hmm. Uh, outside outside facilities and and a lot of courts and a lot of tennis clubs and. Um, so the environment is, is really good. So if the environment is good, you will have a lot of kids. Uh, if you have a lot of kids, it's difficult not to have a few of them, uh, who will be successful. And then I think that we really have a really good, uh, coaches, but club coaches, I would say, I mean, uh, there's a lot, a lot of uh, tradition in, in terms of club coaches. And I think they are doing uh, a really good job. Mm. Uh, but the opinion is not the same when they turn into, you know, like, um, I would say, under 14s, under 16s and juniors. Because I think uh, they, they, as you said, they have a lot of pressure. And uh, they put them into... Uh, really really hard schedules and and mm-hmm. uh i think there are not people is not doing a good job in terms of uh manage these uh these ages um i think they are more at the federation level they are more worried on competitions than on on creating like environments for for the development for the i would say a long-term athlete development mm-hmm. um uh, and instead you can play actually you can compete every weekend during the year yeah so it's a dangerous combination so if you are like thinking about success only success only uh, to be number one in your age category and and then you have the chance to to compete every weekend uh in turn it turns into a really dangerous um you know weekly schedule because these kids, they basically uh, train for the weekend competition. So they, they mm. don't have days off, for example. So they, they, they return from, from a competition. On Monday, maybe they do like a light day. And then they start to, to plan for the next competition, which is the next weekend. And, and the, the whole year is a system like that. So yeah. in terms of planning something in a long-term perspective, uh, it's almost impossible. And of course, we have good players because there's a lot of people playing tennis. So yeah, we, we have good players. But for me, there are only exceptions. If I'm honest, there's nothing behind that. It's only yeah. a question of, okay, we have good coaches. And these good coaches, they have a lot of players. So among them, it's always 
a question of probabilities, you know? Yeah. It's like if you have a thousand players, it's a you have a lot of probabilities to have a dozen good yeah. players, decent players. And yeah. among them, it's always, I mean, you can have uh, uh, an Alcaraz, <laughs> of course. <laughs> Mm. It's a, but it's not a question of um, uh, of the work behind. I would. I'm not saying uh, from an individual approach. I'm not saying that Alcaraz is not doing a, a great job. He's doing a great job, and his environment is doing, and his team is doing a great job. Uh, but I'm meaning in a, in a, let's say a national perspective. And so I, there's almost no connection, for example, between clubs, and uh, and I'm not I'm not mentioning the the coaches uh, systems or or the strength and conditioning coaches. I mean, there's no communication uh, among among them. Mm-hmm. So it's positive on one side because we always have good players, but uh, if you analyze it from a long term perspective, I'm not really. Uh, convinced about what is going on in the next uh, 20, 20 years, I would say. Mm. It's really, you know, something to consider here because I don't know of any other sports, maybe I'm wrong, but most most sports that I've, I've been around, the other sports, they have a true off-season, right? They have a yeah. true off-season that is lengthy enough where you can actually you know, take some time off of your sport or really reduce your hours in sport so that you can work on other qualities that are important that that can kind of build you up so that you can handle your sport better. Yeah. 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 And 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 you see that um when I mean when you analyze the you know performance of uh, of a professional player. If you if you notice uh, when when a when a pro player is uh, performing really good, for example, in in two uh, I would say uh, master thousands in a row, for mm-hmm. example, I mean he's performing well. He's doing, for example, final and semifinals, or maybe he's winning one and the next one is uh, reaching the final. Uh, it's always the same uh, profile. They uh, they normally cancel the next tournament and they mm. say on the media they say oh i'm really sorry i was uh, you know uh, mm. <laughs> i was hoping to to reach whatever tournament but due to uh, physical problems i cannot i cannot travel i'm sorry guys uh, nobody's thinking about that maybe maybe the, the calendar is not is not really uh, planned for mm. the athlete it's just planned for the show yeah. And, and you know that uh, all the agents are meeting up now in Indian Wells. Mm. So in Indian Wells, they basically plan the calendar for, the, for their athletes. It's not even the athlete, the one who's deciding, okay, I will go here and there. It's not even the athlete. It's the agent. It's the manager, the one who's deciding, okay, you will play uh, 40 tournaments next year. Because you you will earn two millions, yeah, and and this is not a really good uh, you know uh, construction. So since we have that problem, the rest is is like you said. I mean, players have no real off season. They have what two weeks, mm. two weeks of resting. Maybe uh, they 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 have to do like I mean they go to the whatever Seychelles for for a week something like that and they then return they return home and they have what five weeks mm. tops and then they have to travel to Australia I mean which is crazy yeah because um, if you analyze a player I mean for example like Casper I mean he's he's Norwegian I mean he has to change Norway for Australia in in five weeks so how how you manage that it's almost impossible. Mm. it's almost impossible i mean of course you can do that but you can train three weeks at home and then you have to move to india or or south america or wherever to to try to find a place for uh acclimatizations Mm. so so it's it's crazy it's crazy there seem to be some players that do it better than others 
yeah. obviously they're at the they're at they they can do it right because money is not a factor and and yes, that's, you know, that's, they, that's the answer that's that's the answer and 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 the problem at the same time um but they they do seem to do it well and maybe they you know like guys like obviously rafa and and roger and and these guys they they they've been able to over their careers plan their schedules i i don't if i look back i think i've done some some of this in the past where i look back how many tournaments these guys play early in rafa's career he played more tournaments of course but it wasn't great like you know i don't remember him playing 30 tournaments a year no no he was playing quite a lot i guess but uh since he had that uh stress fracture mm. uh, in the foot and mm. which at the end it's the injury who uh, which you know caused uh, more problems to his career uh, but at the same time, I think it was positive. Mm. Look yeah. what I said. <laughs> yeah. It was positive to have a stress fracture. Yeah, uh, yeah because uh, otherwise, I think his career will be much shorter. Mm. And uh, he had to handle it with, uh, you know, try to manage the stress and recover and, and try to find a balance uh of course with a lot of problems because he, he had a lot of problems in the past but uh, he was able to manage it to manage it properly and and it wasn't the same for other players if mm. you look at if you look at other players at similar ages i don't know but uh, murray will be uh, one of them uh, pretty i mean unbelievable player uh but also you know, with a lot of problems with some injuries and, and, and loads. And I mean, we can discuss if, if, if the training loads they were receiving were correct or not, but it depends on the perspective. <laughs> I'm not going to discuss that um, because I always say that there are many ways to, to roam, you know, mm -hmm. and, and so it's, it's not my, uh, uh, my style to to yeah. you know to discuss that but uh there are like players i don't know it's um there are a lot of players i mean their potro and a lot of players who had a lot of injuries and yeah. um i think that uh the fact that rafa had a you know a big injury like that at early age i think it was uh positive for his later career yeah uh, in the case of Roger, it, it was something like that because if you if you if you think about it, even if he was like managing the uh, and and uh, of course we can also analyze the the players' characteristics are completely different. I mean, is mm. a, I mean uh, Roger is a, yeah, yeah Roger is the style of play and the kind I mean the movement. I mean of course in terms of energy expenditure and in in, the, in terms of uh, demands mm. uh, his way of playing it's much more I would say soft with the mm. body mm. Uh, but if you analyze it more in detail I mean he never played uh, clay court because of his knees mm. and at the end of the day when he was pushing uh, a little bit on clay look what happened I mean he uh, he had a meniscus rupture for a few times so uh, knee problems. Uh, so I think Novak is different. I mean, I think uh, Djokovic uh, makes a difference between them because uh, mm. he's a mixed, he's a mix of both. And yeah. uh, if, if you ask me, I would say he's, he would be the perfect, uh, the perfect player. Mm. In, ter in terms of, I would say, um, performance and style. Mm. Uh, of course, if, if we decide, uh, okay, uh, who's the stylist and then the guy who, of course, it's Federer, uh, who's the mental and the physical, of course, it's Rafa, but who's mixed between both? It's uh, Djokovic. No? Yeah. But um, yeah, the managing, the managing of the of the calendar, it's 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 really complex, I would say. Yeah. And just to to kind of 
cap this topic off. What we what we often don't talk about is that these players are making it deep into tournaments every yeah. week, every yeah. week over their entire career. So how much more tennis is are they playing? You know, match intensity is always higher than practice intensity, no matter what. We you yeah. know, so um, these these are factors to consider as well. Uh, I want you to put your your research hat on for for a moment here, and let's dive into because. You've done some some really great stuff, and I'd like to talk about one study to start in particular, and that was a recent study or 2021, mm-hmm. um, where you where you're kind of looking at the tennis serve and and where to place the tennis serve. How does it differ if we place the serve at the beginning of a practice versus at the end of the practice? Can you can you go through this study? What what were sort of the uh, the protocols that you guys did and some of the findings that you you found? Um, yeah, I mean that that was an old idea I had for for many years, and that was an old <laughs> argument with a lot of coaches I worked mm-hmm. with. Uh, of course, probably same as you had in the past, or all the all the strength and conditioning coaches uh, had in the past. Uh, and it was uh, because I was I was really interested in the in the shoulder function mm-hmm. in the last uh, I would say ten years uh, because of some shoulder injuries because of the problems I was uh, uh, analyzing when I was testing the players and how they were like uh, evolving from uh, year to year and and how this profile the shoulder the shoulder profile was changing. And uh, the change sometimes was um, um, correlated with uh, problems. Mm. Uh, sometimes not, but uh, most of the times was. Mm. So um, it was one of my main concerns when I was approaching the, the training. But what um, were what what were the what were you seeing there? Were you seeing, you know, are we talking about uh, shoulder range and strength? Yeah, uh, basically there is a specific adaptation in the in the tennis shoulder, which is um, uh, there's a modification in the range of motion, of course, um, which is positive on one side, but can be negative on the other. Mm-hmm. And uh, it comes together with a specific, uh, I would say, strength um, adaptation. So the, the internal rotation of the dominant shoulder becomes... Um, um, smaller and smaller with the years mm-hmm. which can be positive because is a is a specific adaptation to protect the shoulder mm-hmm. but it comes it comes with a lack of uh, external rotation strength so that specific combination can be really uh you know uh, problematic if if you don't if you don't pay attention to to the balance um so you know i was having players who were training on a daily basis and blah blah and and most of them they were like uh, training the surf at the end of the session i know that other i mean it was it was nice to publish this because uh, i received a lot of feedback and uh, a lot of coaches they were like arguing a little bit with me uh, because they were saying oh but no, we are not doing that way Okay, I can accept that, but uh, a lot of coaches in 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 a, in a high percentage, they were doing that for a long time. You know, like training training the surf at the end of the session, which is the moment uh, in in that the shoulder is more fatigued. Yeah, of course, depend it depends on the session, but normally after uh, an hour or an hour and a half of tennis your shoulder is fatigued and, mm-hmm. and, and you put him under the most stressful situation for the, for the tennis shoulder, which is the surf. Mm. So, um, and sometimes with no uh, technical or tactical goal, because most of the times they play only one ball, they don't pay attention to the second ball or not even to the third, mm. which is, but that's another question. Uh, so, so yeah, I suggested a few coaches to organize a, a research and I say, okay, guys, we're going to, we're going to 
play more or less in, in, in the same conditions in terms of tennis, tennis training. So not very dem demanding sessions for a few weeks, uh, controlled in terms of uh, volume, in terms of time, more or less the same. It was something about an hour. Um, and we're going to use the same players. And the same group of players, they were training uh, for a week with the surf uh, at the end of the session. And they were like doing a wish out for uh, a week and a half. Uh, and then uh, the third uh, week, they were doing exactly the same, but they were doing a good warm up plus the surf and then the tennis session. Mm. So in the, in the other, in, in the other protocol, they were doing a warm up, classical warm up, typical warm up they were doing, uh, plus the tennis session, plus the surf. And what we uh, did was to um, analyze the range of motion and shoulder strength mm. before and after the week. And do you, so, I, I believe you also looked at the surf speed, surf, right? Surf, and, uh, surf velocity. Yeah, and, and we also introduced the surf accuracy that, I mean, surf accuracy is a, is a little bit more complex uh, mm -hmm. to analyze. Uh, uh, so we used a very simple test, which is not really, I would say, useful, but I mean, it can give you information, but the most important factor for us was uh, the surf velocity. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, in terms of results, I mean, there was a huge difference to uh, when they were uh, training the, uh, uh the surf at the end of the session they were losing a lot of shoulder strength after the week uh the range of motion also varied uh, uh quite much and they were uh, serving with less velocity at the end of the week so that's basically the main yeah. uh the main differences so uh it was interesting to publish that uh, and important for me to publish that because we were like giving a reason why to do it at the beginning of the session. And then of course you can discuss with the coaches. It's not, it's not only to do it at the beginning of the session. Of course, you can mix it up. You can mm -hmm. do some service training at the beginning and then you can go for encore training. And then uh, maybe you, you want to change a little bit the, direction of the training and then you make a pause in the in the middle of the training and then you can also train the surf there and and then you can finish the session so yeah there are a lot of different approaches but the main the main message from this research was okay if you have to decide when to do it do it in the first portion of the training or even in the middle portion of the training but please don't do it at the end. Mm. If I'm honest, um, uh, I, I try to make, uh, uh, to give a little bit of, you know, uh, impact to the study. And I share it with a lot of coaches and I try to uh, organize like discussion meetings with uh, some of uh, the coaches I know. Uh, but the message was not really uh, well received in certain uh, areas, I would say. Why, why is that? I don't know. I think tennis, uh, we have a huge problem in tennis, which is the old beliefs. And mm. coaches are working mainly with all beliefs. And especially, I would say, middle-aged to, uh, you know, over 50 coaches. Uh, I'm not saying young coaches, because uh, luckily we are having a new... I would say a uh, group of uh, young coaches who are, who are working with uh, really good players and they were, they are actually, they are really receptive to, to this kind mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, scientific information, how to apply it and how to implement these things into their daily routines. Uh, I'm not saying that everyone in tennis is like an old fashioned, but um, yeah, there's still a, uh very very uh uh important group of coaches who are like working based on all beliefs and this is always a problem if you want to implement something new oh it's for them it's uh it's very difficult it's very difficult to reach them and if you don't convince them it's difficult to convince the athletes as well
in a, in an ideal world, how would you organize um, a tennis session from from the scientific perspective? Now, I'm I'm asking also because I've seen I've seen both sides. I, I've done both sides. Um, I have my biases, you know, and I've seen even at high levels, you know, I went uh, and watched a practice at the German Federation when we lived in, in Munich and they did one session where they hit, you know, they did their physical warm up. They then did their tennis warm up, you know, just hitting up the middle volley overhead. And then right away they go into serve warm up, and then they were doing serve plus one or serve plus two combination type of drills, um, which that was the first time this was probably 2016. That was the first time I ever saw a practice like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, and I've, I've been around tennis since, uh, you know, I was in an academy setting in the early 2000s as a player, you know, so and we never did that. That that specifically approach, it would be like my ideal approach is that mm -hmm. the one basically uh, uh, I tried to introduce uh, when I was working in Germany back in 2009. Mm -hmm. I was working there from 2009 to 2011, 2012, uh, no, 2013, actually. And uh, we had a lot of contacts with the German Federation. So I think the message... Uh, they had at the time because Alex Ferrauti was part of the of the board in the German Federation and they were listening to us uh, a lot. Uh, mm. So I think part of that message was uh, uh, had a positive impact in the in the Federation at, at specifically in the different uh, tennis bases. Um, it, as you said, I would I would try to work specifically on the warm up. For me, the warm-up is the most important part. Uh, you can basically do everything on the warm-up. So mm. it's only it's only a question to have enough time. Mm. Uh, and when I mean enough time for a tennis session, it wouldn't be more than 30, 35 minutes. Uh, with 35 mm. minutes, you you have everything you need. And then mm. you can you can actually uh, when when you have um, to work on the neuromuscular level, I would say like. Uh, to do like uh, prevention, uh, some basic strength, uh, plyometrics and so on, and speed, agility, change of direction, um, acceleration, deceleration drills and blah, blah. You can actually uh, implement that on the warm-up. And, and for me, that's the most important. And, and you, have it, you have it done uh, in 35 minutes. And then they can go to the tennis session and it depends on the on the goal of the tennis yeah. session. Of course, you can uh, modify a little bit the, the warm up, and then maybe you can work a little bit more on the high intensity side, uh, specifically on the tennis or with tennis drills and so on. So I think it it would be like a combination between okay, implementing the neuromuscular training during the warm ups, and trying to implement or combining. Uh, the high intensity during the tennis drills. And if you can't, uh, of course, um, I, I was always a fan to, um, and I found that very useful in tennis uh, to use like 30 minutes before or after the session, specifically mm. when you work with young athletes who, who need uh, a more individualized approach. So of course you can have uh, two guys of the same age, but they are biologically different and they need different things. I would say uh, one maybe is uh, biologically more advanced and maybe he needs to work a little bit more extra on the flexibility side and the movement side on the, on the agility side. And the other one, maybe he needs to work a little bit more on the, on the basic strength side, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, it's always interesting to use like small periods of time before or after the session, depending on the individual goals. Mm. So my, my ideal, uh, my utopia would be something like that. You know, mm. uh, the strength and conditioning coaches uh, will, would be focused on the warmups, uh, would be uh, like 
uh, helpers or collaborators during the tennis sessions. Mm -hmm. For example, when you have to mix aerobic or anaerobic drills, uh, you could you can help. You can actually help the coach Absolutely. because you can you can tell them, okay, uh, drills how how long should be the drills? What about the intensity? What about the pulse? What about the macro pulse? So you're, you can be actually inside, engaged in the tennis session. Mm -hmm. uh, and then of course, running the um, uh, extra training, for example, in the gym, uh, which uh, in, my, in my utopia or utopic world, of course we, um, or I would, I would uh, basically use uh, uh, velocity-based uh, approaches to the, uh, to the testing, not to the daily, uh, to the training. daily training, but to the testing. Uh, and it's, it's, it's what I'm basically doing with my badminton players. Mm. Um, That's, uh, it's very similar to how I would, I would do things as well. Uh, I just want to ask you before we, we move on, so you mentioned that did these players in this study, they did you find that over the course of the study, though, they still or, or other studies um, that you've looked at where, you know, they're losing this this range of motion in their yeah. internal rotators and then uh, they're gaining range externally, but losing strength. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a that's, normal. That's, that's, that's a normal, typical tennis. Yeah specific adaptation adaptations yeah what what do you like is there there's obviously some sort of balance that needs to be in place there are you seeking to gain some of this range back in the internal rotators are you trying to gain strength there's, in the external yeah, there, we, actually we have uh some cutoff values to to follow the uh uh you know the players mm. adaptation um um, a value which is um, which can be a little bit concerning and can be dangerous in terms of rotation, internal rotation in the range of motion. Uh, it's uh, when they are uh, not able to move more than uh, 40, 50 degrees. Uh, that's uh, that's a cutoff, dangerous cutoff value. Mm. Uh, in terms of external rotation, uh, of course, it's unbelievable how they can rotate specifically in impassive uh, um, mm -hmm. techniques uh, i i can tell you that i tested players really young players who were able to uh, rotate externally more than 165 degrees 165 degrees That's i remember one american guy i tested once uh, he was 183 degrees wow. and that's amazing. That's not even. I mean, uh, anatomically, that's uh, that's a huge problem. Um, Are we talking but, about from from ninety degrees of yes of abduction? Yes, yes. <laughs> on the on the treatment table, mm. uh, and um, for the external rotation, when they pass one forty five, uh, it it can be also dangerous because it shows you that there's a huge laxity on, yeah. the, on the shoulder. So these are the, the cutoff values for the, for the um, range of motion. And in terms of strength, you, you always have to find a balance between internal rotation and strength, which, which is always uh, better uh, mm. than the external rotation. When the external rotation is um, uh, around 75 percent or above the internal rotation strength it's mm -hmm. that's a good value mm. that's a normal that's a normal adaptation i mean mm. forget about to find a perfect balance between both yeah. i mean if you have player a player who's above 80 i mean he's he's, he's really good um and then the cutoff value it's below 75 below 70 uh and and i can tell you as well i mean i i've been testing young players for a long time, and you, you always have twenty to thirty percent of them, uh, which uh, that already show um, fifty, sixty-five percent 
of uh, an imbalance uh, between the external and internal rotation. So that's when it becomes a problem. Yeah. Because if the guy is or, or the girl, she's 12 or 13 or 14, of course, that that uh, balance is uh, progressively uh, becomes worse. Mm. You know, uh, it's not become becoming better. And then if you analyze what they are actually doing as, let's say, prevention training, it's a joke most of the times. Yeah, they do the theraband exercises, but they they do things like this, right? Oh, okay, I'm doing my my prevention training, but that's not a proper that's not a proper uh, work. No. I mean, we, you know very well the stress imparted on yeah. on those structures is much higher in a serve than what you could ever experience with a theraband, right? Yeah, yeah. That's that's why um, we are like working in the last few years. Um, we are working quite a lot on on specific uh, programs for uh, for the shoulders, and if we are lucky, we we have a study. Uh, on the review right now, um, and I hopefully uh, have it published in the next few months. Uh, and it's about a shoulder intervention in tennis players, young yeah. tennis players with uh, similar uh, values I already mentioned in terms of range of motion and 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 strength. And the most important thing on the the message, uh, forgetting about the the exercises which which are not like mm, different than the ones you can find on different books and papers and so on. Um, it's, uh, it's the uh, supervision. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if you want to have a successful program, you, you have to supervise it. I mean, it's not, if you let the player doing it on his own, on her own, you're mm-hmm. not going to be successful. And for the shoulder itself, uh, you need to be like, I mean, you need to be on them all the time uh, during the warm up and during the cool down. If you do the cool down, in terms of stretching and so on. So, the most important thing. Are, you, are you talking about junior players primarily? Uh, any, any yeah, the, the um, the study is focused on uh, under fourteens, under mm. fifteen, under fifteens, and under fourteens. Yeah. Mm. So. It's the only, I think it's the only way. I mean, if you, if you pay attention on those ages, if you are like uh, systematic uh, with them on those ages, it's easier than that in the future. They, they won't need anyone yeah. on their backs because they will, like, they will be like professionals. Yeah. You know, so you don't need to be uh, together with them to do the, to, to, to tell them what to do on the warm up. I mean, they will be, able to do it on their own so i think and it's it's important because probably 90 percent of tennis players traveling on the futures and you know those two those those startup tours uh, are alone they don't have access to so they better have a good foundation and good habits uh, from earlier ages right that's it and the coaches education as well Mm. I mean, uh, sometimes we forget about the coach, but uh, most of the time the coach is the one, is the only, uh, I would say, adult who's traveling with the players, uh, specifically at early ages. So uh, they also need uh, a good foundation on, okay, what can I do and what what should I do in terms of uh, fitness on the road? uh, Because... I don't know too many, too many uh, young players who are like traveling with with both the coach and the strength and conditioning coach. Maybe some some federations, like I said uh, earlier, but uh, not everyone is is doing that. So the coach needs to know, okay, uh, at least the ABC of of a daily of the daily training. Mm, absolutely. Well, Jaime, this. Uh... This was really great. Uh, I'd love to talk talk more, but I know you've probably got things to do. It's a six hour difference as well. You got yeah. Kids. Actually, actually, I need to run for the training. <laughs> you got to run to training, so there you go. Um, we'll have to do it again and, and explore some other topics. But sure, where can um, 
where can people find out a little bit more about you, your research? Um, well, I mean, uh, uh, I'm not really active on the media, but uh, I have a, a Twitter profile and I have an Instagram. And of course, um, more specifically, my research is easy to find on the ResearchGate uh, mm -hmm. website. Yeah. Uh, so for those who are familiar with uh, for, with those, uh, you know, uh, sites, it's it's pretty easy to uh, uh, to find me. And I I always think that I'm a really accessible guy. I'm not like mm -hmm. I don't I don't think about myself as a I would say professor, uh, old fashioned professor at the uni or researcher, blah, blah. So I think. I'm an easy, an easy guy, and and I think as for those who want to connect, uh, I'm a really open-minded guy. So yeah, that's great. That's great. And I'll I'll link uh, the ResearchGate um, articles here, and and make sure that people can can have access because there's a lot of open open access articles as well. Yeah, and and if free. and if the article is not there, I mean, you can directly ask me. I mean, there's mm -hmm. no problem at all. I always answer and i always say the information of course our goal as a researcher is is to uh to have as many readers as possible yeah it's not it's not much different from the social media i guess <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah just a slightly different crowd per, perhaps yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the message the message is a little bit harder yeah but, uh, yeah so Matt, yeah thanks very much and and i hope we can repeat i really yeah. enjoy the time and and thanks very much for inviting Absolutely. me. Let's do it again. Yeah, sure. Yes. Okay, take care.